Well, if you were with us last week, you know that we've just started a new sermon series where we're focusing upon the lifelong pursuit uh, for all followers of Jesus Christ. And you recall that as we introduced this last week, we started by talking about how once a person has accepted Jesus Christ's gift, uh, gift of forgiveness, that that brings them into a right relationship with God. And at that point, they become a new creation with an eternal destiny, which is exciting, that is true, that is praiseworthy, of that, that, that future destination that we can anticipate and can claim. But the Christian life is not just about the future destination. It's also about the journey, the journey that we are on from this moment until that day arrives. It's also about the calling that we have all received to pursue a greater experience of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul said it this way in, in, uh, in Philippians 3, where he said of himself, he said, I want to know Christ. Yes, he says, I want to know Christ. I, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know what it looks like to become more like him. And as we have these different experiences in our lives, as we engage in the word of God and the experience of God in our lives, as we, as we grow more in our knowledge of who God is and what he's like, but then also as we have an opportunity to take those and put them into practice, that's what we're referring to when we hear this term spiritual maturity or, or spiritual growth. So starting today, we're going to continue that series. And each week going forward from this point on, we're going to be looking at a, taking an educational and a practical look at some of the practices, some of the characteristics, and some of the priorities that we can focus on as we individually, but also as we collectively pursue that spiritual maturity in our lives and here in this church. So today, we're going to spend some time talking about the Bible, talking about the Holy Scriptures, the, the Word of God. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we, we all have a Bible, but did you know, did you know that the Bible, year after year after year, is the best-selling book of all times? They don't even list it on the best-sellers list because it would make the list a little more boring because it's like, yeah, I know, Bible's number one again. So they don't even list it on that anymore, but year after year after year, number one bestseller. Did you know that there are, have been over five billion copies of the Bible printed, sold, and distributed around the world? Five billion copies of that. I think it's safe to assume that we can find a Bible in most of your homes. If you've been to a hotel, you know you can open that drawer by the bed, and there's a good chance you will find a Bible in most hotel rooms throughout North America. If you have a smartphone, if you have a tablet, a computer, there's a good chance that most people in this room have probably found some of the thousands of Bible apps and downloads available to put onto your phone, most of which are free. We read each, work, each week in church, and I think we also accept that the Bible has central importance to our faith. However, once we get outside of our Western context, did you also know that the Bible is illegal in 52 countries? Did you know that there are 40 regions around the world where it is restricted, and another 13 where the people are hostile towards the concept of the Bible? There are people who don't enjoy the privilege and the freedom to download and to own and to hold the Bible in their hands. That if they merely did that, they're risking their safety, maybe even their lives in certain parts of the world. 
Now, since we live in North America, I think it's safe to assume that all of us here probably, there's a high likelihood we have at least one, probably more Bibles in our homes. If you're like me, I have a whole shelf of Bibles. I'm not sure why I've collected Bibles, but I have a whole shelf full of Bibles. I have a Bible going back to my very first one I received as as a child at a church in Ontario that we used to attend. I have one one of those uh, children's Bibles. Probably a lot of people have that children's Bible, the white hard cover with a picture of Jesus holding a sheep on the cover. I have a Bible I got at baptism at a church and, and various Bibles throughout my time. There was one time at a previous church I worked at where I had the Bible I had used all the way through Bible school and for years prior to that, and it was pretty it was pretty frayed and pretty well used. And a man walked into my office and he came to see about something totally different, but he, he paused mid-sentence and he said, is that your Bible? And I said, yeah, it was a little bit embarrassed because it was in terrible shape. And he goes, I said, yeah, that's, that's my Bible. And he, he kind of shook his head and left. And I thought, oh, offended by the condition of my Bible. But he came back there that afternoon with a gift card. He said, I love a man of the word. And here's a $100 gift card to go buy yourself a new Bible. And so, <laughs> and, so and that Bible actually is this one that I have right here. Um, they went and bought it. It's rather large, but it was a $100 gift card. So I had to get a big, <laughs> a big hefty Bible. Um, little side note on that. Uh, this Bible is very precious to me because a few months later, he actually passed away of cancer. And so every time I look at this Bible, I remember him, and this is the Bible I used to read scripture of from at his funeral. Um, but the Word of God is so precious and so special to many of us. But I want to ask you a question, and it might be a little bit sensitive. With all this access and, and the fact that we probably all have Bibles at home or even on our phones, when was the last time you sat down and read it? Now, I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. We're not going to do a survey right here. I'm just going to throw that question out there. With all this access, when was the last time we actually sat down and read it? That's a question that, that the research group, uh, Barner Research, conducted this last year on, on, on not just Christians, not just evangelical Christians, but, but just North Americans in general just a general population, kind of asked them these questions about Bible reading. And it was actually surprising, the responses that they came back with. I was, I was personally shocked by them, because what they found when they investigated people's desire and actual engagement in Bible reading, they found that a majority of people wish they read the Bible more. I, I was surprised by that statement in itself. But not only did there, was there a desire to read it, there was also, and I found this surprising, a, a slight, it was about that big, a slight increase in the number of people actually reading the Bible, which, which was shocking to me because I thought we would see it go in the other direction and drastically go in the other direction. But they found there actually has been an increase in, in not just in the desire, but actually in the number of people who are reading the Bible, which led to a second question they asked is why? Why do you feel this greater increase? Why are you more engaged in Bible reading? And, and the top three answers that people offered were, were quite interesting. The third reason was technology. People said, well, it's, it's more accessible to me. I, I have it downloaded to my phone, and so when I have a few minutes, I can, I can kind of open it up, and it's there. It's accessible to me. It's on my phone. It's on my tablet, which is awesome because that's the world we live in today. That, that's the generation in particular that is, that is coming up. The, if you think about it, the generation being born this day and going forward will never know what it's like to not be connected, connected to the Internet, not to be connected to electronic devices. It's one of the characteristics of this new generation taking shape. And so we have access to it there. 
A second reason they found was that people said, well, during significant changes or significant difficulties in my life, I I feel drawn to turn towards the Bible. And so even in today's culture, the Bible is still seen as something that offers comfort and can offer guidance in the most difficult times of our lives. But the number one reason, the number one reason people said they felt a desire and actually were engaging in Bible reading was because they came to understand it as an important part of their faith journey. And that's what this whole series is about. This whole series is about helping you engage and pursue more in that faith journey. Now, I know that there are people here in this sanctuary who come from all different points on that journey. There are those who are, who are still uncertain, are kind of questioning this, this idea of Jesus and, and some of the claims he made. There are those here who are new to the faith, who have made that acceptance, but are, are still trying to figure out what that looks like in their lives. And there are those here who are lifers. You've been doing this for decades to come and are very familiar with these concepts. But understand that there is a variety and a myriad of types of people here on different points of their faith journey. As we talk about this topic today, I'm not going to assume anything. I'm not going to assume that we have a certain level of knowledge and we're just going to simply go right back to the basics. Which reminds me of a famous story that some of you may have heard about one of the most famous and one of the greatest football coaches of all times. You probably heard his name, Vince Lombardi. Now, Vince Lombardi, a few decades ago, became the new head coach of the Green Bay Packers. And on the first day of training camp, he gathered his team around, and there in the room, there, there were rookies, first day on the team as a professional football player, people who have been there for a couple years, people who have been there for 10 years or more, and they were all gathered in this room. And he walked into the room with a football in hand, walked to the front of the room, surveyed his team, of rookies and veterans, and he held out that pigskin in front of these professional football players, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And he went down in history as one of the greatest coaches of all times because he stressed the fundamentals. He stressed the fundamentals with these people. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. So let's stress some fundamentals today. And start at the beginning. So, what is this book that we're talking about? The Bible. Well, in truth, to start at the very beginning, it's actually not a book. It's actually 66 books, to be more accurate, written by approximately 40 authors over a period of 1,600 years. It's divided into two sections. We have the Old Testament, which takes place before the birth of Jesus Christ. And we have the New Testament, which is the life of Christ and beyond. In the Old Testament, we see the story of God's relationship with a nation. That nation being the people of Israel. And we also find in the Old Testament promises of a coming Savior who would be a Savior for all nations. In the New Testament, we find the story of Jesus Christ, who fulfills these Old Testament promises. And it tells the story of his life his perfect life, of his death, of his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and the life of the church from that point forward. Now, even though that we have these two sections that seem distinct, they're not independent of each other, but they actually complement each other. Because throughout both sections, Jesus Christ is the central character who ties the whole Bible together. In the Old Testament, it predicts his coming. 
and it sets the stage for his entrance into the world. In the New Testament, it describes his coming and his works that lead to salvation for all of us. And it also gives us insight into the follower's life from that point going forward. Therefore, the central purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to us. It's to reveal God to us and his desire to be in relationship with us, for us to be in relationship with him. Now, if you consider all of the people you've ever been in relationship with, like, like all the people you have ever got to know on a level more than just an acquaintance, how did that happen? Well, I think in more cases than not, usually there's an introduction that happens. Somebody introduces you to another person, and you begin a conversation that takes place over time. Now, during that initial conversation, you may talk a bit about yourself. You, you might talk a bit about your family and your professions and where you live. You might talk about some activities you enjoy doing and what you've recently been involved in. Now, if the conversation and the relationship were to continue into future conversations and go a little bit deeper, you might then start telling some stories, some stories of your past experiences. Eventually, you may even decide to to share enough of the deeper parts of yourself where you, you talk about times when other people perhaps have injured you and some of those wounds that you carry. You might talk about what makes you angry, things that you really like and really hope for the future. And as all of that takes place over the course of conversations, over the course of time, as all of that takes place, you don't just get to know a person's story, but you also have the opportunity to get to know their character. And you get to know their personality as well. You also start to ponder questions like, do I like this person? Maybe I even even love this person. Perhaps this is a person that is worth dedicating my life to. Now, since God can't physically be here in the same way that a friend or a spouse can, it begs the question, if this is how we get to know people and build a relationship with them, how can that possibly happen with God? Well, you see, the Bible is the master key that unlocks our ability to know and to follow God. Paul mentioned this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he said, He said, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived are the things of God and are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And they are revealed to us by his Holy Spirit. You see, this verse confirms for us that that a true knowledge of God, truly knowing who he is and growing in relationship with him, cannot happen on human ability alone. It is beyond our human ability on our own to know these things of God. But the Bible allows us to experience all of these aspects of who God is. Allows us to grow in our knowledge and in our relationship with him. But keep this in mind, that we're not just getting to know another human being. This isn't just getting to know Susan in the cubicle down the way. This isn't just getting to know Tony, whose kid also plays on the hockey team. We are getting to know God. We're getting to know God who has revealed himself through the Bible as being love, as being holiness, as having power and majesty, righteousness and justice, who reveals himself and appears in grace and truth and faithfulness and wisdom and is the one who loved you, who loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life with him. The Bible is the primary place that we learn about these things. 
The Bible is where this is revealed to us. And we can come to understand God's character. We can understand his will and we understand his promises. And we come to understand that he loves you. That he died for you. And that he wants to walk through this life with you and into the next. Which is the journey we are on and what we are called to pursue. So from this, I think we can start to understand what the Bible is. The Bible is God's revelation of himself and his desire to be in relationship with us eternally. But there's some big questions around it. For example, one question I run into on a fairly often basis is, how can I possibly trust a book that was written like 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 miles away? How can I possibly trust that that is still accurate and relevant for me today? Like, can I really trust the accuracy of the modern Bible on my shelf that I've downloaded to my phone? And, and I understand this question. In, in fact, there was um, one time a number of years ago when I was visiting a, a mosque and had an opportunity to, to tour the building and observe a prayer service and some of the teaching that happened there. And then following that, had an opportunity to sit and, and talk with the imam for a while. We, we talked about various aspects of religion, of frequency and style of worship and, and personal disciplines, what that looks like in Christianity, what it looks like in Islam. And, and we compared these different things and had a wonderful conversation. Eventually, our conversation turned to scriptures. And as soon as that subject came up, he quickly and adamantly just stated, your Bible is wrong. Your Bible has changed. It's, it's not accurate. It's full of errors. Now, I wasn't surprised to hear that. That's, that's a common thing that people of certain faiths believe about the Christian Bible. It's, it's actually a common statement that exists within the world today. But, but I'd suggest to you that that's based more upon assumption and opinion than it is upon research. Because there is a field of research that digs into this, and, and, and it's a field of research called textual criticism. Now, textual criticism is the process by which people ascertain the original meaning of a text. And so when you're looking at books that are, are centuries, year, centuries of years old, like the Bible, for example, but many, many other books as well that, that are centuries and centuries old, we don't have the original text. We don't have the, the, the manuscript, the papyrus that Paul sat and wrote on. Those are not available to us anymore. Just like in many other original works, they don't have the original copy that the author penned. So these people who are doing research into these books of antiquity, what they do is they collect all of the copies we do have, and they compare those copies for quality and accuracy. So, as you can imagine... If you're collecting all the copies available and comparing them for quality and accuracy, the more copies you have, and the earlier they are, meaning the closer to the original they are, the more confident you can be in what the original text said. Does that make sense? Textual criticism. So here's some examples. I'm not sure if you can read that on your screen there. Probably can't. I'll share some of the information with you. You can find this stuff online as well. Textual criticism of some non-biblical books, just books of antiquity, for example, uh, a book called Herodotus uh, from the 5th century BC, which was when it was written, the earliest copy we have is 1,300 years after the original, and we only have eight copies. There's another book that has similar numbers, Um, Thucydides, for example. Again, about 1,300 years, and we only have eight copies of it. As we move down the list, 
We find books like Tacitus, which was written around 100 AD, 1,100 years from original to the most recent copy, and only 20 copies. Moving down to Caesar's Gaelic War, a 1,000-year gap, and only 10 copies. And then down to the last one that's listed on the Roman history, 900-year gap, and only 20 copies. So we have essentially a 1,000 or more years from the original to the newest copy, and a handful, in some case less than 10 at most, two dozen copies of these documents. And these writings are considered accurate by society. They are considered trustworthy based upon the information we have, which is only a handful of copies and over a thousand year gap between them. So, let's fairly apply the same science to the New Testament, for example. And when we do that, here's what we find with the New Testament. We find that, as we know, the New Testament was written in the first century, between 40 and 100 A.D. The gap, earliest copies we have, start around 130 A.D. This means that we are dealing with the shortest time lapse of all. In some cases, a time lapse is short as 30 years, less than a generation. In some cases, up to 300 years in the worst case scenario. But not only do we have the shortest time lapse, there are 5,000 Greek versions to compare. There are 10,000 plus Latin versions to compare. There are over 9,300 other languages that we can use to compare. And the most amazing thing, when we have tens of thousands of copies, in some cases less than a generation from the original text, when we look for, for errors from the Bible we have today back to those originals, all they can find are some spelling mistakes and some changes in style. In every single case, 100% of the message remains true. So, in terms of accuracy and trustworthy, not only does the Bible have the smallest time lapse in all of antiquity, not only does the Bible have the most copies that we can compare, not only does the Bible provide historical details that are continually proven accurate through current archaeology, but also consider this. Consider the statistical probability that the Bible has overcome in its composition. Consider the statistical probability of 66 books written by over 40 authors, who most of whom didn't know each other, over a period of 1,600 years, would be able to tell one story, fulfill over 2,000 prophecies, and maintain its accuracy and its relevance for all people throughout time. I think we would have to say that that is a miracle. And miracles are the things of God. And there's a next verse I want to draw your attention to that speaks about the things of God in describing the Bible to us because it truly is God's revelation to us. It is his inspired word that should have authority and confidence in our lives. And it's found in one of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote to, to a young man named Timothy, a man that he had invested in and had taken on a missionary trip with him a man that he had been teaching and mentoring and had grown up to become a leader in Ephesus. And in the second letter he wrote to Timothy in the third chapter, after affirming all of the instruction Timothy had already received, he reminds him this about the Scripture. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now there are two important aspects of this verse inspiration and authority. Inspiration and authority. When it says all Scripture is God-breathed, it's, 
God breathed is a literal translation of the word inspiration. Now, of course, as we've mentioned a couple of times, it was written by human authors, over 40 of them across a span of 1,600 years. And, and these were men that we, that we know their names and their histories of. They, they were kings and fishermen and tax collectors and doctors and religious leaders and poor people and prophets are, are, are the authors who wrote the Bible. So it's true that the Bible is 100% human authors. But this verse is also claiming for it to be 100% inspired by God. Now, to many, this will seem like a contradiction. How can it be so that it's 100% human written, but 100% inspired by God? Well, I invite you to consider this example. Consider, for example, St. Paul's Cathedral. The the one in London, not the one in Saskatoon. There's one there, too. The one in London. (laughs) Now, the one in London was built by Sir Christopher Wren in 1675 until 1711. It took 36 years to build this. And he is credited with building this wonderful building. Yet he never laid a single stone. Instead, they had people on site who were stonemasons and carpenters and laborers and builders who did the actual building of this cathedral. But Sir Christopher Wren is considered the inspiration behind the building of it. He is the one who is given credit for it. He is the architect of what was built. It was built exactly the way he wanted, under his direction, under his instruction, and the final product was what he had envisioned from the very beginning. Well, so too it is with the Bible. While we have many writers, there is one architect, and there is one inspiration behind the whole work that we find, and that is God himself. But we also see in this passage that the Bible has authority to govern our daily lives and our relationships with each other and with God as well. This verse tells us that the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training up in the things of righteousness, and it is equipping us for good works that we can go and do. Now, this is a a different view than you will often find people having with the Bible. People often say the Bible is a restrictive work. It exists to, to, to put restraints upon us or, or to steal our fun. But I think more accurately, we could rephrase that in saying that the Bible establishes boundaries. Boundaries for which we live in. Boundaries we will occasionally bump into, which is the purpose of boundaries. But often when we do bump into these boundaries, if we're honest with ourselves, I think often we're glad they're there. And we also understand why they're there. As many of you know, I used to live in British Columbia and in the interior, and on occasion we used to drive down to Vancouver. And when we would do that, sometimes we would take the Fraser Canyon Highway. Have you ever driven the Fraser Canyon Highway before? You'll know what I'm talking about if you have. It is a windy, mountainous road where along the way you'll have a sheer cliff on one side, highway, and a cliff that drops down, best case scenario, into the Fraser River. It is a windy, mountainous road full of logging trucks that just whip around those corners. Now, as you're driving down that road, if an emergency suddenly were to come upon you, the only thing keeping you from going over the edge into the river down the cliff is that guardrail along the edge of the highway. That guardrail is a boundary, and you're thankful that it's there. You're glad that it's there. But we see boundaries useful in other parts of life, too. Imagine sports. Like soccer, for example, if there were no boundaries, if there was no out-of-bounds, and people could just run wherever they wanted and play the game however they liked. Also, think about children that you may know. 
they tend to thrive. It's, it's an accepted psychological understanding that, that as children develop, they need and they thrive when they have boundaries. They feel more comfortable and secure when they have boundaries. Perhaps you've seen a child who has run away from their parents in the mall and they're thinking, freedom, as they leave mom and dad. And then they stop. And they look. And that fear comes over them. And their tears well up in their eyes. That is not the look of freedom. That is, that is the look of fear. As they are searching for that parent. As they are searching for that security to get back in relationship with those boundaries in their lives again. Well, folks, God gives us boundaries. He gives us boundaries out of love. Because he knows what's best for us. When we read in the Bible that he says, do not murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. He's not trying to steal our fun when he says those things. So too, when he says, have no other God above me. When he says, love one another. When he says, don't gossip about one another. He's not trying to wreck our fun. He's trying to give us boundaries that preserve relationship. And here's the thing. If we come to know God better, if we come to understand his character and his will, we actually become more open to his commands and we become more open to his boundaries because we grow in our trust and our knowledge of him. And we have confidence that while it may not make sense to us in the moment, we know that he loves us and wants what's best for us. Now, before I close here this morning, I want to take a few minutes and get really practical and just talk about some basic strategies for how we can go forward after this day and actually study the Bible so that if you're not already doing so, you can go home, open that book you have on your shelf, open that app on your iPhone, and take an opportunity to pursue a deeper relationship with God. So let's walk through a few quick steps on how we can learn more about him and study his word. Now there's many ways to study the Bible. I'm not going to suggest this is the only one, and this is actually a very basic one. But it'll help us to get started if it's not something currently happening within our lives. And it can be adapted if you were looking to just read through the Bible quickly to get a picture of the whole story. Or if you want to go slow and study, it'll be adaptable for that type of thing as well. So to begin with, step number one, Pick a place and a space. you got to think in advance, what is the place and the time of which I'm going to study and read the Bible? Figure that out ahead of time and set it aside. I cannot underestimate the, the power of this step. It can make all the difference in this becoming a regular activity in your life or it not being. Find that comfortable place in your home or in your office at a restaurant, a coffee shop, a park, whatever it may be. Find that room or that chair where you have good lighting and no distractions. Uh, this is my place. This is the chair in my office that many people have seen me sit in. And on more days than not, I start my day and sometimes my afternoon by sitting there reading, studying, and praying. Now, if you don't view this as a priority, it's easy to skip. And so one of the ways you can make this a priority in your lives is by actually setting an appointment in your calendar. If you're like me, you are driven by your calendar. If it's not your calendar, it doesn't exist. If it's in your calendar, there's a good chance you're going to fit it into your day. So if you need to make an appointment with God on a regular basis, set it into your calendar. It does not need to be hours long. Even setting a calendar appointment for 15 minutes can be enough for you to start to grow in that relationship with God. And you can expand from there if you want to in the future. Number two. Select an appropriate version of the Bible for yourself. There are all types of translations out there, and so it can be confusing not knowing where to start, which Bible should I go with. So really quickly, 
I'm going to explain how these are divided into two categories. First of all, we have the type of Bibles which are referred to as paraphrase. They're, they're considered a thought-by-thought thought translation. They're less literal, they're easier to read, and they're user-friendly. So if you are new to the faith, if you are not familiar with some of these bigger concepts of Christianity, if English is your second language, or if this is your first time reading the Bible and you want to go kind of cover to cover, this might be an option for you to consider, a thought-by-thought paraphrase version. Some of these versions are the Good News Translation, the, the Living Translation, and then a few years ago, Eugene Peterson brought out one called The Message. Now, most of us, however, will have something on the side of the scale called a literal translation, which is more of a word-for-word as opposed to a thought-for-thought. These word-for-word ones are closer to the original context, and they're written in a less common form of English at times, and so they can be a little harder to read. This type is good if you're looking to do more of an in-depth study because it's more of a word-for-word understanding. And quite often, if you look for it, you can find one like mine, which is a study Bible, which is kind of a word-for-word, and on the bottom of the page will have commentary or explanations about some of the verses that can help you if you get stuck. Some of these versions would be the uh, North American Standard Bible, the King James Bible, and in most places we'll find the NIV, which is kind of right in the middle between the thought-for-thought and word-for-word, trying to be true to both of those to some degree. Now, if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, before you leave, you need to let us know, and we will give you one. It's the one thing you're allowed to take from the church without asking, is if you see a Bible, as long as it's not somebody else's, you can, we can make sure you have one. Or better yet, just open up your phone, your tablet, your computer. There are wonderful apps that you can download to do this. Four of my favorites that, that are out there is we have, um, we have the Version Bible, which is a wonderful app. And then they have a Uversion Kids, a Uversion Kids Bible now as well that's available to download. There's also Olive Tree. And then for some serious people, this one costs a little bit of money, but for some serious Bible study is Logos, which will give you access to thousands of additional books as well. It's, it's a huge, huge, powerful program if you want to get into that type of study. Okay, so we have our place. We have our time. We've selected the right preference of Bible for what we're trying to achieve, whether reading through story, the whole story quickly or if you want to get into more of a, a Bible study. Now, before you begin, pray. Enter into it with an attitude of prayer. Ask God to help you understand. Ask him to help reveal to you anything that might be confusing because some of it is confusing. It, it was written in a different language, a different style for a different audience and a context than our present day 2017 Edmonton world. And sometimes you'll come across poetry, and I suck at poetry. That's, that's tough. I really struggled through Jerry Shepard's poetry class on the Psalms, but we made it. We made it through that one. But here's the thing. The more you read, the more you'll understand. Now, Nicky Gumbel, who is uh, the founder and the presenter of Alpha, talks about this point, and, and he refers it to a crossword puzzle, being like a crossword puzzle. Where, and if you've ever done a crossword puzzle, sometimes you come to a question that is really tough and it kind of stumps you and you're, you're not sure what the answer is. Now you have a choice to just sit there and just ponder it and go nowhere, or you can move on. You, you can keep going and press on and answer some of the easier questions that are in the crossword. And as you do that, it starts to fill in some of the blanks. It starts to fill in some of the letters on the harder one, which then make it easier when you go back and some of the answers have started to be filled in on what stumped you in the past. You now have a higher likelihood and better understanding to answer the stumpers when you come back as well. So think of it like a crossword puzzle if you get stuck. Press on 
And see if you can come back later on and, and consider some of those different uh, trickier ones with the Holy Spirit guiding you and revealing these truths to us. So we've got a space, we've got a place, we've got our Bible, we're all prayed up. Where do we begin? Well, that seems like a silly question because it's a book. You start at page one, right? Maybe, if you want to, that's fine. But there's other directions on where you can begin as well. Now, all scripture is good, will benefit you. It's all inspired, it's all authoritative. But if it's your first time through it, I actually recommend you start more closer to um, the beginning of the New Testament. It's going to be a little more familiar. It's going to be a little easier to read through some big concepts in there, and you will discover Jesus Christ in there. In particular, consider starting with the book of John. And if you start with the book of John, which is the fourth of the Gospels, the four stories of Jesus Christ, you read through the book of John, and as soon as you finish that, you will come to the book of Acts, which answers the question, well, what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven and that people had to go forward in life without him walking with them? The book of Acts, the, the history of the early church. And once you finish that, you've read through the story of Jesus, history of the early church, and then the next book you'll find is Romans, which is a wonderful book of theology, a wonderful book of understanding the deeper things of God. And from there, you can keep reading right through to the end of the New Testament, and then when you go back to the Old Testament, you'll have a better equipping to understand some of the more difficult passages and, uh, and concepts that you find in the Old Testament. So quite often that's helpful if you've never done it before. Start in John read through to the end of the New Testament, and then go back, Old Testament, through to the end. It's also a good idea to have things with you, have your tools with you. Have uh, pencils and notebooks and post-it notes and markers, things like that, so that you can highlight, underline, make notes as you go. It'll help you read and ponder these things later. These are useful to identify topics and words and things like that you want to look at in more detail. And then finally, close with a time of reflection and prayer. Take an opportunity to ask some important questions. Ask questions like, 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 what is the author trying to say in this passage? What was the author revealing to his audience of that time about God and about life? How does what I've just read affect my relationship with God? How, how can that affect my relationship with others? Examine questions like, like, what do I need to consider examining or doing in light of what I've just learned? And then close that time with prayer, asking God to help you grow, share, and put that into practice. I want to close with a strong encouragement to go study your Bibles in the days ahead. To take this wonderful resource that we've all been blessed with and use it to help us grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and how he revealed himself through the Bible and through Jesus Christ as all. Well. And I encourage you to do that on more days than not. And I firmly believe that if you will, God will reveal himself to you and you will be eager to put into action what you've learned. Jesus said this in Luke 11. He said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. So as the worship team comes up to join me on the platform here, I encourage you to read the Bible. Study at your own pace. Do it consistently and let it sink down into your life. And remember, we are called to pursue, what we are called to pursue is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a lifelong journey, not a week-long journey. So prayerfully take what we've covered here today and what we'll cover in the weeks ahead. Determine what you can seize, process a little at a time, and put that into practice. You won't be able to do everything, but all of us can do something to grow deeper in our relationship with God. And so until next week, keep walking in your pursuit of Christ, in your life, in your home, 
in your community and in this church.